Hello, everybody. This is Alex Barthet with the LeanZone.com podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the 10 most dangerous subcontract provisions and how to avoid them. And our guest today is Josh Levy of Document Crunch. How are you doing today, Josh? Hey, Alex. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So, Josh, tell us a little bit about yourself and Document Crunch. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm not unlike you, Alex. I've been practicing construction law. I've been in the industry my whole career. Um, started in private practice, private practice where I was representing mostly developers and general contractors, but doing a ton of work with all parties in the industry. And um, ended up transitioning to go in house for two top ENR uh, construction contractors. Uh, ended up kind of having leadership positions in both roles, whereby certainly was still practicing law and, you know, making legal decisions, but also functioning as an executive. Um, and kind of in those collective roles, I just came to appreciate how much of our industry is at a disadvantage when it comes to understanding things around contracts. Uh, we're going to talk about, you know, actual provisions today, which would come up in the negotiation or bid of contracts, but then also even just managing contract risks day to day in the field, project teams needing to comply with the contract to, to make sure that they're keeping profit and jobs. So I understood that having all these experiences, which led to me founding Document Crunch. Uh, I just thought there was a better way to leverage technology so that more of the industry could have wherewithal around construction contracts, whether it's bidding or negotiating or in the field. And that's what our mission is today, to make the industry smarter around construction contracts and risks in those contracts and how to manage and work those contracts. Yeah. So you not only did you see these provisions uh, in your day to day career, you spend your time now um, finding them and analyzing them for Document Crunch, right? That's exactly right. So Document Crunch is a, is a technology company. Uh, our mission is to make the construction industry smarter around uh, contract risks on every project every day. So really the basic uh, premise is folks upload their contracts into Document Crunch where we will help them identify those issues that are critical in their contracts and help provide some insights uh, and context around those issues so that folks are better able to understand those issues and then make good decisions around those issues. Again, whether you're bidding or negotiating a job or you're ultimately um, you know, managing that job during construction, you have to comply with the contract. You need to understand this stuff. Alex, I'm sure you from experience know this and it's been my overwhelming experience. Those individuals or those companies that have wherewithal around these issues, they are the winners. It's those, it's those companies that don't have wherewithal around those issues that can either, you know, get taken advantage of or they make unforeseen mistakes, which lead to lost monies. You don't want to be on the wrong side of understanding these issues. So it's, it's my true belief that with technology, we can help level the playing field so that the smaller companies, uh, now have a better resource to understand this stuff. So we could talk about dozens and dozens of contract provisions, most of which will put our listeners to sleep. But you've given us a list of the 10 uh, seemingly most dangerous contract provisions. So let's let's dive right into them and start with what I would agree with you is the number one um, problematic provision, and that's pay when paid. Why don't you explain what it is and, and we can talk about it. Yeah. So this is actually a fairly complex one, nuanced, but at, at bottom line, if you have this type of a provision in your contract, what it likely means is that even if you've performed and completed satisfactory work, that your entitlement to payment may very well be conditioned upon the contractor receiving payment from the owner. 
And that obviously um, could put a, a little bit of pressure on your cash flow because you just aren't in control with how long that payment term may be. Yeah, pay when paid is a very common provision. In some states, I understand that it's not permitted, but here in Florida, it is, uh, and it is prevalent. We see it in um, GC contracts. Um, we even see it in some owner contracts that say we owner don't have to pay UGC if our lender doesn't fund. So, you know, we see pay when paid at every level down to the sub subcontractors, um, and I, I think the general theme of what we're going to go through today is, you know, part of this is negotiating and your ability to deal with the issue at a business level, but you first have to know that the provision exists and it's in your contract. So you show you that you're making smarter decisions, right? Absolutely. And even what you just said about how this may not even be enforceable or permitted in some jurisdictions, you don't want to be on, on the side of the argument where you're having to spend time, money and resources to prove that it's not permissible. You know, you'd rather, like you said, understand the issue and know about it at the business level so that you can make an informed decision, you know, as to whether this is something that you even want to deal with. Which, you know, when we talk about pay when paid, the next item on your list, to me, it's the it's the cousin of pay when paid. And that's the right to stop work. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. And again, th there's some nuance to this issue, but at the highest level, um, you know, the, we're looking at for clauses that affirmatively establish that if you're not paid timely, you would have the right to discontinue performance so that you weren't continuing to put sticks and bricks in the ground, even though you hadn't been paid. You know, I, it's shocking to me that people come to me even today and they assume that their contract gives them the right to stop working if they haven't been paid. And unfortunately, especially on larger jobs or contracts that are more sophisticated, more sophisticated in their drafting, it actually says the complete opposite, right? That you you do not have the right to stop work, right? Yeah, I mean, that would be the, the worst scenario. And I would, again, kind of like we were just talking about with pay when paid, perhaps what's even more insidious, insidious is the scenario where it's not even clearly spelled out one way or the other. So is there an argument that you could stop work if you weren't paid and there was no express right in your contract? Maybe. Do you really want to be the one who's like having to prove that out as to whether you have that right? Or would you rather just know that it was affirmatively spelled out in your contract? Right. Certainty rather than ambiguity, right? Exactly. That's, that's what makes a good contract and being aware of these issues is at the foundation of that. So um, let's take three and four together. Um, three is consequential damages and four are liquidated damages. Um, why don't you explain what both of them are and why they're so dangerous? Okay. Yeah, that's great. So um, I'll, I'm going to still break them up. So you know, the, the general rule is you, you are responsible uh, for the cost to complete your, def your you know, or I should say the cost to remedy or, or correct any faulty work that you've done. That's like a generally accepted rule in construction. If you do something wrong and it needs to be redone, you would bear the cost of doing that. But it could become a, you know, much more expensive for you if in addition to that cost to repair your faulty work, you are also responsible for what I'll call the owner of the general contractor's special damages or consequential damages like their lost profits if you know you, the building couldn't be used or 
uh, their lost income. If, you know, you were late and you couldn't, you know, you didn't perform timely and they, you know, think about like a hotel opening, you know, you, you install faulty windows and the room goes out of service and now you're paying the hotel for their lost, uh, their lost room rates, or you finish the hotel late and the Super Bowl was, was being held there and they would have had $20 million in revenue for that Super Bowl week. And now they can't open on time. That becomes a lot more expensive than just fixing the faulty window. And that's considered consequential or special damages. And the issue that we're talking about now is, are you protecting yourself or capping your exposure to those types of losses? And kind of this subcategory to that would be liquidated damages. And Alex, in your jurisdiction of Florida, this really, I think, is the birthplace of how liquidated damages work. But if you are indeed late, are you ensuring that you understand what your exposure will be? And is that exposure capped or limited in a way that you're comfortable with so that if you are indeed late, you're not betting the company? You know, I, I think that, uh, so it, let's talk about consequential damages for a minute. So the standard AIA contract documents typically include a waiver of consequential damages. Um, and the opposite is typically true on a custom form agreement that's that's given to you that's prepared by a lawyer um, that was hired by the other side in the transaction. They're going to want to make sure that they can recover their consequential damages from you um, if there are any. So we always recommend striking consequential damages. And a, a big push that we have seen is if you bond the work, most sureties are very uncomfortable to the extent that that there's any possibility that their surety bond could be liable for consequential damages, right? That's exactly right. But in the event that that exposure seeps in, you're likely to be <laughs> have a real problem because the surety would still probably be on the hook if they underwrote a contract that had that type of exposure. You know, we've seen a lot of clients have some success with... Uh, uh, using their surety as the foil, the reason why um, certain provisions can't be uh, accepted. So consequential damages for me lately has been one where the contractor has gone back or the subcontractor has gone back to the contractor and said, look, I've agreed to do the work. I can't agree to consequential damages because I can't get you a bond. My surety will not write a, uh, a bond for a contract that has consequential damages. So that's a, a good tip. You know, the other thing on liquidated damages that you mentioned, sometimes clients come to me and they say, oh man, I, I, can't, I can't agree to a contract with liquidated damages. And I have to explain to them, just like you did, Josh, that you're still liable for damages, even if you don't have a liquidated damage provision. And that in many instances, I think a liquidated damage provision is really helpful as long as you can pick the right number, right? So maybe you change the $1,000 or $5,000 a day to $200 a day or $400 a day. Um, do you see that having any success? Absolutely. And I think like the underlying rationale for this, Alex, is as follows. And I, I, I hearken back to some airline work I used to do, you know, where we were building for, um, you know, a major airline. That party, the airline in this case, or the hotel in the, you know, the other example I gave, that party understands what its exposure is if its business is interrupted or if, um, you know, something happens that takes it out of business. 
that party likely carries insurance. That party, in like the case of the airline, likely prices that exposure into their ticket price. That party, you know, likely has, you know, seats reserved on additional flights to put somebody on a flight or hotel rooms booked. That party kind of like bakes that risk into its business operations. It's impossible for the contractor, the subcontractor who specializes in building buildings to understand what an airline's true exposure is or how a hotel's lost revenues are truly calculated in these types of scenarios. And so it becomes like a black box in a way to try and decide whether or not that's reasonable or not. So being able to liquidate it, or put a restraint on it, or kind of like understand that there's a limit on that exposure or that exposure has been altogether removed, it helps a party really get kind of comfortable with this idea that it understands what its exposure is because it's stated in the contract or it's limited in the contract. And then you can make a decision as to whether the fee that you're going to make is worth that risk. Right. Right. Again, the importance of knowing versus not knowing um, in your decision-making. One of the things that most people typically agree to that we see um, is a lower liquidated damage number than their opening salvo plus a a window after contract completion before liquidated damages um, would begin to to run, whether that's 30 days after, 45 days after. So I think you can limit your risk if you combine those strategies in your negotiations. Um, But that leads us to the fifth item, which is a fantastic thing if you can get it, and that is liability caps. Tell us about that. Sure. And it's, it's kind of similar, uh, you know, to this concept that we're talking about of kind of either setting forth or limiting or, or altogether insulating yourself from an exposure. So in the case of liability caps, we're talking about where the contractor subcontractors total exposure for item for, for liability under the contract is actually limited to a certain amount. So rather than having an unlimited, you know, imagine a scenario. And again, I've done a lot of work in the, um, in the renewable space, so imagine a scenario where we're working on a $300 million renewables project and, you know, one contractor had a $100,000 contract to supply like a, a material piece of equipment. And if that contractor on that hundred, you know, is it, I, I will not take a position on this, but I will raise the question. Is it fair that the $100,000 contractor would be, would be exposed to the entirety of the general contractor's exposure under the $300 million contract? I don't know, but that's where liability caps come in. Right. And even on top of that, you as a contractor in measuring what your liability cap should be, um, understand that ideally you'd like to be, you'd be willing to give up maybe your profit so that you don't make any money on the job. But beyond that, just know that if you have a cap that is in excess of your profit on the job, um, if something goes wrong, you may be um, on the hook to have to do this work and not just not make any money, but lose money. So understanding what that cap is, uh, well, let's back up. It may not even have a cap. So the first thing to try to do is uh, determine, is there a cap on your liability? Because Correct me if I'm wrong, Josh. If it says nothing, there is no cap, right? Right. Just like if it says that you have no consequential damages waiver, you're likely going to be exposed to consequential damages. 
just like if there's not a, a, an affirmative right to stop work, you may you may have an argument that you're not allowed to stop work. So absolutely. Right. Um, so let's talk about the next one. Uh, number six, indemnity. Uh, tell us about indemnity. Oh, that's a hairy one, Alex. But, um, you know, and I don't know what type of language is permitted on this job site uh, or on this on this podcast. But I'll, I'll, <laughs> back when I used to advise the industry, I used to say, you know, stuff, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, happens on construction projects. And usually you have contracts that dictate who's responsible when stuff happens. And what I would say is indemnity is the clause that really, you know, determines who's responsible for stuff happening. And I would want, you know, personally, going back to my heyday of of advising the industry, I would want to make sure that you were only responsible for stuff happening to the extent that you caused that stuff. And that's what indemnity relates to, right? It, it puts responsibility on parties for stuff happening and it can either be tied to your fault or it could be a little bit more broad form or, 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 or all encompassing like, Hey, you were the contractor on the site. Anything that happens, whether you were at fault or not is your responsibility. So, you know, again, indemnity relates to who's responsible for stuff happening and, 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 and in what instances, it, you know, is that party responsible? Is it only to the extent of their fault or is it for more? than that stuff. One of the things I would tell you and tell our listeners is that much more likely than not, if you are being given a contract that's prepared by the other side, it's going to be the, you're probably responsible for a lot more. So you just have to be aware of that. Um, when you read contracts, which ties into our prior, um, uh, Point, which is liability cap. Do you have a cap on your liability that would include any indemnity obligations? One of the things we recommend to clients is while you're probably not going to be able to get rid of your indemnity obligation, it would be nice if you could put your insurance in front of you before the contractor can make a claim against you on your indemnity obligation. So you would say something like that our indemnity obligation um, is only after the contractor has exhausted all available, uh, insurance, right? So you would, you don't, you can't get rid of it, but at least maybe you're after your insurance. And, and we both know Josh, that when these claims happen, typically insurance is triggered and most cases settle. So if you can put your insurance in front of you to take the brunt of it, you're better off. Yeah. And you mentioned something else and we provide kind of some context around this point in document crunch. When you, when, when we're looking at the indemnity provision, the user can kind of see this nuance. The other side to that, Alex, is you want to make sure that your indemnity obligation or the stuff that you're responsible for does not extend to things that are not covered by your insurance. Because at that point in time, if your insurance carrier is saying, well, the contract says you're responsible for this, but your insurance policy doesn't cover this. That means that you could be left holding the bag. Right. And uh, you probably didn't price that into the job. Um, That's coming right right out of the bottom line. Or in the case of a few small contractors, that could be coming right out of your personal balance sheet, frankly. So let's talk about number seven. Delays happens on a lot of jobs. What do we have to be mindful on delay provisions? Yeah, I mean, and, and I should have said this with a lot of these topics, but one thing to definitely be mindful of is what is the contractor getting from the owner in the prime contract? 
I don't know how many of you all regularly ask, may I see the prime contract? But in most cases, you have the right to do that. And you should know what the contractor has entitlement to uh, on all of these points, because that could very well inform how you decide to handle these issues. But the idea here is stuff happens on construction projects. You know, jobs get delayed all the time. You want to make sure or, or, or you want to you know, understand when those delays are you bear the risk of those delays or when those delays become uh, events that you can get relief or compensation uh, for because they happened. You know, you want to understand whether those uh, events uh, seem fair to you. You know, is it is it fair to take a project and where Alex is located in Florida that says you get zero compensation if there's rain delays? I mean, I'll let you be the judge of that, but I know from my time working in Florida and living in Florida, it rains a lot there. Uh, is that something that you can manage to? And so understanding what the delay framework is, both in the prime contract and in your subcontract, it becomes really important. You know, as a as a side point to this, um, you know, one of the best ways to mitigate against being impacted by delays, we find is proper documentation. So obviously you got to deal with the contract, but properly documenting what's happening on the job so that when you get to that closeout meeting or when you receive a delay claim, you have a, 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 a thorough history in uh, emails, meeting minutes, and photographs to support your version of why we got to the, this point in the job and why it wasn't your fault. So um, that probably actually applies to a lot of the things we've talked about. Um, the documentation is critical. But... Um, Delays are uh, unfortunately inherent part of a lot of construction projects. Yeah. And going back to like why this matters in your contract, Alex is right. Documentation is critical. But if you don't understand the contract, you may spend a lot of time documenting all the bad rain that you experienced in a situation where the project, the contract says you don't get entitlement for rain. Or, so or, or, it's, or it says, and if you're going to make a delay claim, you got to do it within 72 hours and you never did. Yeah, we see that all the time. So understanding how this framework works is critical to inform your strategy for how you're going to document, manage, and comply with the contract, which goes back to what I talked about. This is not just for the purposes of negotiation. This is for the people of, or bidding jobs. This is for the people wearing hard hats. You need to understand this stuff. This, is, this, this becomes the rules of engagement. You need to have a playbook to understand this. And that's something, you know, at Document Crunch, we're also trying to help support to give you all the tools that you need to understand this and make, you know, good play calls as a result of, of these issues. So we got three more to go, Josh. Um, number eight, subsurface conditions. Tell us about those. And I'm guessing it applies generally to any hidden condition, right? Yeah. Any laid in or subsurface condition on a project. So, you know, again, you, 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 you in most cases, I'm assuming that most folks listening to this podcast are not doing exhaustive site testing or destructive testing at active facilities behind walls, underground, whatever it is, to know what's going on on the site. And this provision type is is the provision that that that, that stipulates or says who bears responsibility if a a, a a condition is uncovered which was not assumed in the pricing or sequencing of the work. And, you know, oftentimes those types of, of events can be disruptive. They can cause delays. They can cause project shutdowns. They can cause having to resequence work. They could cause, you know, increased costs to perform. 
the question is who's responsible for them. And Alex, I'm sure, you know, in your experience as a litigator, you could talk about numerous instances where that has cut the wrong way for your client. And you want to be aware of that, of that, those issues and make sure that, that you understand that going into the job. Yes. It's a, uh, it's pretty common that these types of provisions exist in the contract. You know, there's general statements in the contract that you've investigated everything you visited the site, you've looked at all the plans, you've done all of your homework, and you are fully aware of any and all issues that could impact the work, um, no matter where they are or how they're caused. And you agree that your price is firm and your schedule is firm, no matter what comes later. Well, that kind of locks you in pretty tight to the idea that if you find something that's outside the scope of what you expected, that you're going to ask for a change order, a time extension. What is where we see most clients make mistakes, the less sophisticated clients, they give a quote to an owner or contractor, and it has lots of exclusions, including lots of exclusions related to hidden or subsurface conditions. That quote then gets gets to the other side, they get told that they get the job, and then what they get back is a contract that makes no reference to their quote or estimate, no reference to their exclusions or limitations. And then they sign that contract and something happens and they come back to me and they say, well, but I gave them my quote that had all these provisions and I have to tell them, well, wait a second, you signed a contract that makes no reference to your quote. Actually, it says that no other documents other than this contract control. So to the extent that you run into this issue, um, we think that it's important that you take whatever the exclusionary terms and conditions are that are in your quote and make sure that they make their way into your contract that you actually sign. Because that's the only way it's going to be enforceable, right? That's right. And I would advocate for even a step above that. Have a clear clause that says what happens and how the price is adjusted if subsurface conditions are encountered. Um, all right. So we got two more hazardous materials. Number nine. Um, to me, this is a pretty simple one, right? I mean, it's a hard sell to think that you would, as a contractor, would somehow be responsible for hazardous conditions on the site that's not even your site. It's the owner's property. You dig up and you find a, you know, an, aban an improperly abandoned you know, fuel tank. Why is that your fault? Couldn't agree more. And I would say that this becomes more of a problem of compliance than even like a, a poor term. I've just seen numerous instances where notwithstanding that you shouldn't be responsible for that, a contractor, subcontractor still commits to either remediate it or sign tickets or help manage it. And then when things go wrong, they're arguably on the hook. So being aware of how these responsibilities are allocated and what your, and what your actual responsibilities are becomes really important. But I agree, this is a pretty simple one. Um, all right. So number 10, design responsibility. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, this is the age-old question that we've all in this industry asked ourselves, right? How who who bears the burden for in ineffective plans, drawing specs, inaccurate ones? If you get out to the field and what you estimated is actually different than the conditions in the field, whose responsibility is that? And uh, the, the this type of a provision, you know, we're we're looking to clarify whether you are entitled. Or, or you are taking on design responsibility, or you are actually more clearly disclaiming any responsibility to warrant the accuracy of the documents. So uh, 
pretty at the core of what being a construction professional is all about. And again, you would rather be express about these types of issues than leave it to chance because the law is a funny thing. It's very jurisdictionally specific and it's always changing. So you want to just be clear about what level of responsibility you are or are not taking as a construction professional versus a design professional. Yeah. Just remember that as a contractor, you didn't get paid to design anything um, most of the time. So uh, you should reiterate that fact in your contract and disclaim design responsibility. And of all of the provisions, uh, I would tell you, we find that most contractors and owners are pretty willing to recognize that fact um, because it's true. Like, they, why should I be responsible for the design if I didn't do the design? Um, so we see very little pushback when you try to make that change. Remember, the other side is always trying to get you uh, to, to get you to be obligated to more stuff, um, if you will agree. Then, so the idea of reading the contract, understanding the contract, and pushing back. Look, we've been we've been talking for a long time, Josh, but I I can't help but mention two other contract provisions that are not here that I personally think are really important. I want to mention them. Notice an opportunity to cure and price escalation. Let's talk about price price escalation really quickly because we did a very long podcast on it. If if you're listening now, look through the history of the. Um, podcast and you'll see a one hour presentation we did on uh, price escalation. Um, but let's also talk about notice and opportunity to cure. We see in contracts very short, 48 hours, 72 hours. Um, what are your thoughts on notice and opportunity to cure? Yeah, I, I, you know, that, that's an interesting one. And it it's not one that I'm focused on as much, but I... I as as now I'm thinking about this, this idea that you have short periods of time to do anything, whether it's give notice or cure something that's wrong, it puts a lot of pressure on the job. So you definitely want to make sure that these are manageable standards. And so, um, you know, you want to make sure that if something, if your work is wrong, that you have a reasonable opportunity to, to kind of explore what the complaint is about your work and then do something about it rather than the owner or the contractor just doing it and then coming to you kind of like with a, with a big fat bill before you've had an opportunity to engage. Yeah. Think about it. So I, I give you, I have a contract that says 48 hour notice to cure and it's Friday afternoon. And I send you a huge list of things that you better fix before Monday morning. And if you don't, um, I can default you. That's a problem. Um, what if you're on vacation? What if you, you know, something happened to your phone, uh, for the weekend. I mean, even if nothing happened to your phone, is that really what you, what you want to be doing over the weekend um, dealing with that emergency? So we typically recommend much longer notices than the standard notice of 48 hours. We think a week is generally reasonable. Um, and the idea that the cure not only be uh, fully, th that the cure not be fully completed, but at least commenced with, with reasonable yeah. diligence. Um, because think about it. I mean, what cure could you reasonably undertake and complete in 48 hours? It's like almost impossible. Um, but if you're showing a good faith effort to get things resolved, that should be enough. Um, so go ahead, Josh, go ahead. No, I couldn't agree more. I think giving a, a week just it, it's, as a standard idea, you know, for any and all notice type of provisions seems to be 
a reasonable time frame with which to you know start getting things done. Some of these 48, 72 hours can be really problematic for the reasons that you that you talked about. Um, so, man, we probably scared everybody uh, <laughs> with this conversation. Uh, but is there a is there a silver lining to some of this? Maybe through document crunch. Absolutely. I mean, th- th- the whole point is, is that this stuff, I mean, this is a, my life's work, you know, we under, and, and yours too, Alex. I mean, we understand this stuff inside and out, but because, and even this podcast is a great example too. There is now technology available. Uh, this podcast being a source of technology, document crunch, my, my company being a source of technology, there's now technology available that deconstructs this and makes this easier to understand. None of these issues are going to be perfect. This doesn't mean you're going to be able to negotiate a perfect contract. But by being aware of these issues and how they could ultimately impact you, you can make better decisions around whether it's negotiating or just mitigating or or planning for, you know, kind of some of these pitfalls. And that is all the difference. This is my anecdotal feedback. But in those instances where someone understands this stuff, they tend to get much better outcomes than those instances where someone doesn't understand this stuff. And, and yes, this is what Document Crunch is doing for, you know, small contractors every day. We're making this stuff understandable, providing that little bit of education or that little bit of a nudge that kind of hopefully pushes them to make better decisions and better protect themselves, keep more fee in their jobs. That that makes for a better industry all around for a lot of reasons. We don't want to be, we want to be building. We don't want to be arguing and we don't want to be getting screwed over. We want to be building and, and, and making reasonable profit for building. Um, and, and I believe having wherewithal around these issues allows for that to happen. Well, Josh, thank you very much for your time. If people wanted to learn more or contact you or learn more about Document Crunch, what's the best way to, to do that? Yeah, www.documentcrunch.com. Or if you just go on uh, LinkedIn and type in Josh Levy, Document Crunch, or Captain Crunch, you may find me. Um, you know, We're out there. We're here to help and just really appreciate the collaboration, Alex. It's professionals like you that are moving the industry along. And um, you know, we, we, we all need to work together to, to build toward a brighter future. So appreciate you having me on. No problem. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll catch you next time.